I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello and welcome to another episode of All Things Policy. I am Pranay and I have with me my colleague Saurabh. And we are going to talk about a question today which has been discussed a lot in foreign policy, science and technology circles, etc. And that is about China's innovation. How did it get there? You know, so this is a question which is on the minds of many people. In fact, uh, Defense Services Staff College, a premier defense services, tri-service institution of uh, the Indian Armed Forces asked us to talk about it in one of the seminars and we presented a paper on trying to look at what are the reasons that explain China's innovation progress and essentially we trawled the internet and literature on innovation regarding China and based on that we have come out with a recent discussion slide doc which explains some of the causes how China progressed in this innovation pathway. So that's what we're going to be talking about in this episode. So Saurabh, welcome to another episode of All Things Policy. Thank you Pranay, happy to be here. So Saurabh, uh, let's begin right from the top. Okay, Is China really a global technology powerhouse? What do you think? I mean, it is. I mean, I think especially if you think that it is still a technically a developing country and it is the second largest economy. But if you see, especially in terms of metrics on innovation, it it is ranked 11th in the global innovation index and which is and it is the only income country in top 20. So that itself shows that, you know, at least in terms of innovation, it has a lot of potential and it is able to deliver on it. And uh, obviously, I think there was this news a few weeks ago that China has actually overtaken the US in terms of, you know, the number of country contributions in the in, in, in the number of research articles that, that has been published in natural science subjects at least in the Nature Journal. So that itself is an inflection point where, you know, like the Chinese research output now, at least in terms of the high-ranking journal, it has now exceeded the US for the first time. And uh, China has, you know, more than 100 uh, the science and tech clusters. And they're all spread out in, in, in specific areas. And they're as much uh, in number as the US. So I would say it, it certainly is a powerhouse and is a force to reckon with at least. Yeah, I would just add a few points to that. So it is not the most innovative country in in the sense, if you look at the top measures, still the US would rank high on many of the parameters. But like you said, it is an outstanding performer in its income category, definitely. In fact, uh, it is the only middle income country in the GII top 30, not even top 20. So that is a feat. And uh, there are indicators about science and tech clusters. In fact, there is a list of top 100 SNT clusters across the world. And again, there both US and China have the same number of these clusters now. 
so that is another important metric also yeah progress in critical sectors like you said is an important factor and uh, i mean whether it's supercomputing space or military platforms or ai research if not the first china is definitely in the top 5 in some of these areas so it does make sense at the same time there are lots of weaknesses also like we know that china is heavily dependent on the us and europe on critical areas like on semiconductors and in fact it is this dependence which has helped china come this far so fast and the fact that that dependence china itself sort of made it incoming on itself that other countries sort of want to move away from china doesn't bode well for its future innovation you know so in fact sometimes i see lot of people in this study they see past historical data and just say that you know there is a linear continuation from where china is compared just based on what happened in the last 30 years but they don't realize the way geopolitics has changed and what impact that can have on china's innovation capabilities as well but anyways we'll talk about that as we go ahead so yeah i mean now we can assume that China is definitely an outstanding performer at least in its income category. So now let's go to the next step. If that is true, what are some common explanations that you have come across which try to explain how China got here? Yeah, so I mean I think at least in the I mean in the popular perception the idea is that okay, you know, it was all state led. it was very top down approach where the state is saying okay you now do research on semiconductors and that's how it is going to be done or it is you know or china stole all the technology from the us or or the western allies and it is you know that uh, state capitalism and i think the idea that it was a lot of you know like push that from the government that led to these developments and i think not enough i think credit or at least examination of the fact that there are other players as well which i think need to be examined at least on what their role was in terms of pushing for innovation and their contribution to it right so the i have come across three explanations and this is like you're saying popular explanation so including on twitter right of which you are a ardent user and communicator <laughs> So I the three explanations I have come across are one forced technology transfer right so yeah that's like china forced all these companies to transfer technology and that's why china was just able to do the kinds of things that it did now the caveat that i have and the concern i have on that argument is that technology transfer is not just about getting one file or one product you know you can get that file or product but what you need is a technological learning and upgradation is a complex process which involves imitation adoption digestion assimilation so you need to have the talent and you need to have the people and also the ecosystem to be able to do all this you know otherwise you can easily have transfer from other countries force them to do but you will not be able to absorb that still in fact in india we see a lot with the defense tech companies also right there have been many technology transfer agreements but that has not necessarily led to this imitation adoption digestion assimilation process and then people will come and say oh no one transfers as the best technology there is of course no one transfers right like who transfers why would us companies would have done that for china as well but the idea is you should be able to do things beyond forced tech transfer to actually take advantage and we find there are probably reasons that china has done things beyond it because of which it has been actually been able to take advantage of tech transfer so that's one 
the second common explanation uh, we come across are uh, or nefarious means industrial espionage and theft now definitely there are elements of that in china's uh, story there have been lots of cases there was one case on gmos in 2011 there have been in cases on the semiconductor side as well but yes that some of those cases still don't explain breakthrough in all technologies right so we still don't know how it, china has been able to do that across so many of the fields so you can find in examples in couple of fields but still it doesn't explain all cases so that's also a problematic explanation the third one like you said is state capitalism and there the idea is that a lot of the success was done by the fact that uh, there were state Uh, mega projects which came up and those state mega projects were the ones that brought in tremendous amount of progress uh, but again we here we see that actually wherever the state involvement was more in running companies those sectors are not the ones where china's innovation has caught up in fact it has it is lagging behind in those so a lot of the success came through private companies and not necessarily by state run companies which was the norm in the 50s 60s and a lot of things were trying to be done by state enterprises but they weren't the most successful so these are some common explanations that i have come across and all of them are sort of insufficient to explain china's innovation progress yeah i mean those make sense right because it's it's easy to say that you know there there's this one to these main causes that caused uh, china to be where it is but i'm curious like uh, how like is china's location or the 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 factors around it like did they also play a role like the fact that it was located in that region or i mean so like are there any areas in terms any factors which especially regarding its geography that that did play a role right i would say not just geography it was the specific space and time in which china's innovation story kicked off it is important to understand that right so the high tech ecosystem in which china operated is something worth understanding before we progress about the factors that explain some of its progress so the external environment according to me had sort of three factors one we should understand that china's innovation story is not the same as the typical east asian export model story you know a lot of commentary sees that you know just what south korea did and taiwan did or japan did even china did but there was a lot of difference in china story for example one the role of fdi in china's innovation story is tremendous you know it has an outsized importance because china was not a us ally right so a lot of the technology transfers which happened to japan south korea and taiwan happened because they were sort of very close to the us a lot of new things that happened in the us were was able to move to these countries um, very easily right there were no export controls there were no geopolitical restrictions for these countries so that was a very important reason why uh, the industries took off in these countries right whether it's semiconductor technology transfers etc right so that was that happened because of not necessarily through fdi but just because it was easy for us companies to either invest collaborate or transfer technology to their allies 
whereas in the china case allyship was not a possibility so what happened is a lot of fdi was the role that uh, fdi played that role instead you know so what happened is a lot of private companies when they saw china opened up they set up base in china because they expected the economy to grow they also expected uh, the land labor uh, labor costs were low etc so because of that they established bases and these were companies which still had their headquarters based in the us right so there was it was not as if the core technologies were offloaded to the china centers so with regards to as usual fdis there was some transfer of technology but not the most cutting edge so that was one important thing to remember the other thing also in this was that china's success started in an era when there was modularization of high technologies whereas japan etc when they started there was no modularization in the sense that there were no global value chains the uh, japanese companies made the entire products whether it was cars etc but when it came to china's uh, story to pick up by that time the high tech industry had already modularized so what china did was getting good at a part of uh, an entire high tech product right so modularized production some things which were offshored through fdi chinese companies learned how to do that and that got them up to speed right so they were not necessarily able to build the entire product but they were able to build modules so this is one important difference the second difference was yes when china's industry took off high tech innovation was already a global enterprise like we said it was global value chains you know the era of national champions was sort of waning down high technology was too complex for one country to do everything off so a lot of things were done in a space where collaboration with other countries was important the other element of this was also brain circulation which we talked about where a lot of people from china went to the us and then returned uh, and they went on to start companies and that led to a, a progress that kind of circulation was there which we also see now happening with india but that was also an important external environment factor the final one is favorable geopolitics like i said high tech areas at that point of time were not as securitized so even though china was not a close us ally because of its market power growth very consistent economic growth there were many countries Uh, many companies which were willing to at least established fdi and established some base in china and because these areas were not seen as securitized overly the governments of us etc didn't stop private companies for from transferring at least the low end tech right and that was also an important reason why despite the fact that it was not a us ally it did get uh, some benefit of uh, technology transfer through fdi so these are the three important factors of the external environment yeah i mean that, i mean that i mean does make sense and i mean you also see you know the the optimism in the us regarding like like china's economic story because i mean china then became part of the wto so the world itself was also more open to free trade and i mean now if you look back it just seems like a very different era but i think all of these factors really i mean did play a role but i'm curious that i mean in addition to these i mean for example i mean the fact that china already had you know decades of uh, investment in you know improving its health and education metrics 
of its people and then in uh, an investment in you know like hard infrastructure i mean that itself also i think created the opportunity for china to have the quality of human capital to then which can be then you know put to use with this external environment and also i think uh, i think uh, so sort of why don't yeah. we do this so given that our model suggests that these explanations uh, which are commonly cited don't explain the full reasons and the model that we come up with is a combination of fundamental factors and proximate government actions and we think that sort of explains why china got where it did so let's start with these fundamental factors which you already hinted at so why don't you tell us what are some fundamental factors that can help explain why china got here these are sort of the underlying factors probably done by the government or probably done for other reasons but they weren't necessarily done with the aim of explicitly becoming an innovation powerhouse but they did come to use 30 40 years of consistent economic growth later right so yeah saurabh why don't yeah. you explain yeah so i i think the the first is you know i think as i said was just you know like investment in primary health and education for example i mean this is just one and if you compare india and china i mean it's uh, it's a very stark comparison so you know like for example in 1980s 72% of indians had no schooling while in in china it was only 33% and by 2010 it had come down to 8.2% chinese with no schooling while in india it was still 42% right and then average years of schooling in 2010 in india was about four and a half years while in china it was seven and a half years so i mean you see the you know huge improvement that that happened in in health and infrastructure and then you know even in like number of researchers engaged in research and development work so for example in 2000s there were around 110 researchers in india per million people while in china was about 550 but by 2010 india had gone up to 157 more or less and china has shot up to around 900 so you know this just shows the, the the scale of improvement that happened and also there is you know this this concept that has been proposed by zack taylor in his book like politics of innovation about creative insecurity that means that when a nation feels insecure about its position wants to compete with her with her external uh, actor i think that creates kind of uh, insecurity which then pushes them to innovate and that that kind of insecurity allows them to you know overcome the economic political factors that usually would you know stifle innovation so for example the anxiety in china to compete with the us and then you know want to at least be at the same level as the us if not uh, surpass it i think that that really played an important role in its perception as you know it wanting to become a innovation powerhouse at the same time i would say that the political bureaucratic system that china operates in you know the the very top down approach of having like the the party state where party would have these revision documents and then they would then you know like trickle down to into policy making and once there is a decision made that we want to invest in technology x and then all the levers of the government then you know work towards that aim i think that also played a role it was not as successful uh, you know as people assume as we said earlier but i think it did play a role at least in trying to you know like uh, start the process so these three i would say 
are the foundational factors that, that that explain you know like how the chinese capacity to innovate has increased over the years yeah i think on that selective uh, authoritarian mobilization and innovation model which is uh, there's a great book on this from which we refer to in the paper but what we have to understand in that is that this is a peculiar political economy that can align incentives of powerful stakeholders but it does not necessarily mean that the state has done everything i think a lot of times people think it is so but it means that priorities are determined by the center or by the ccp in this case but it also means that it is aligning incentives of local governments etc towards that but a lot of the action on innovation happens at the local government level or at the level of markets private investors companies etc right so it's not necessarily government doing all of these things but government identifying priorities and that also can go wrong it has gone wrong in many cases also of course there is a survivorship bias now and we only remember the ones which went successful but a lot of times when you have this kind of model you will also go down the wrong path with full speed with the same speed that you would go down on the right paths right so that has also happened so yes it explains to an extent i think there's one more factor here which is about global connections like we said it operated in an external environment where gvcs were global where there was brain circulation happening so that was also an important role the movement of talent back from other countries facilitated by china's own economic growth was also important because we see this in innovation literature a lot that informal social networks either domestic or international play a key role in innovation you know like in the case of taiwan israel and china to a certain extent even in india but these are really important unseen factors which people might not necessarily think of when they see how china has progressed So all right so these are sort of some important factors let's go ahead and ask what are some near term instruments china has used some specific policies that have been used on top of these foundational factors that have led to china's progress so sorab what are some of those ideas uh, yeah so i mean first i mean for, for example i think the, the one that comes to mind is you know these uh, chinese government guidance funds right so these are like so these are these public private investment funds that uh, you know like that have the aim to produce you know financial returns and then they are a tool that is deployed by the government and local governments to kind of uh, further the government's industrial policy goals so for example a lot of these funds have been created by the provincial governments and which then the companies can tap into and then they can use these funds to either bolster their own capacity use these funds for you know outbound foreign direct investment and then to also acquire companies and you know like talent so for example there have been like i think about one i mean as of 2020 about 1000 700 uh, such funds have been set up you know by different entities and then the target size of these is about 1.5 trillion us dollars so there there's a huge amount of money flowing but again i think there are enough uh, i mean both advantages and disadvantages but the weakness i mean especially the fact that they don't raise as much money as they are supposed to raise and they, there are there are concerns regarding they are not very efficient there is a lot of redundancy there is also competition it is like they are not very very well managed 
And then they are usually, I, I mean, there have been reports that they're actually used for non-strategic or uh, for activities which they were not supposed to be used for. So, I mean, and they also actually don't really invest in early stage companies. So because, I mean, it is from the government, so there is always a risk of, you know, uh, having to have good returns. So the risk that is involved in trying to invest in a startup is not really chosen by these funds. So I think that is one. And for example, second one, you know, I mean, so one example is that how the the Chinese government has tried to uh, support the domestic entrepreneurship. So if, if we go a few decades earlier, I think when the reform era was happening under Deng Xiaoping, so the foreign companies were given uh, a lot of relief in terms of rules, regulations. And then it was only after some time that the domestic companies also were given the same kind of incentive. And once uh, these incentives were given, then I think you you saw a lot of change where domestic industry and domestic investment also started to pick up. And uh, this led to, you know, like the growth of Chinese private enterprise, and which also led to, you know, like this, this, very broad institution change where the non-state firms you know were also now seen by the state and the government officials as important players to support you know the the domestic ecosystem so the support that they, they could now tap into was tax breaks low interest credit you know and they, they were given preference in public procurement so i mean uh, all of that also i think as you have mentioned already, foreign direct investment, I mean, that is a significant uh, contributor to this. And I mean, I think the introduction, the opening up of uh, FDI into China, you know, it almost coincided with the amount of like opening up of the of the Chinese economy and then the Chinese extension into the WTO. So, I mean, we have this graph in our in our document. So I encourage our listeners to have a look at it that how fdi you know shot up significantly from 1990s to you know like early 2000s and we have to see that as a percentage of gdp it may not be growing as as much but in absolute numbers it obviously was very very important and then these foreign uh, companies uh, then it collaborated they partnered with domestic industry and then they created a new company. So, for example, Oracle worked with Lenovo Group on ERP software. The French company Alcatel worked with the Chinese company TCL on mobile communication technologies. And, and all of these kind of, you know, like they were transactional in the sense that there was some technology transfer. But then these kind of investments were able to then uh, prop up the like Chinese domestic industry as as well, and uh, I think one very important thing we have to consider when we talk about the foreign direct investment is this importance of uh, hybrid firms. So this hi- hybrid firm concept like is proposed by Douglas Fuller in in, in his book Paper Tigers and Hidden Dragons, where he says that these hybrid companies, which is defined as Chinese companies which have ethnic Chinese management, but their financing is foreign. And they are seen as, you know, or have been proven to be the main drivers of China's tech advancement because they want to avoid kind of complexities that come with 
China's domestic financial systems. And these firms, you know, are, I mean, the most famous firms that we all now know from China, such as SMIC, Xiaomi, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, these all have these, this flavor of uh, having ethnic Chinese management, but r- like a very, very important role of foreign financing. Stay tuned to All Things Policy. We'll be right back after a short commercial break. Yeah, Saurabh. So I guess what we try to do is extend Barry Norton's work on instruments. And there he had proposed around eight instruments. We added a couple more and modified them. So broadly, they could be classified as actions which say the government doing these things by itself, which was not so successful, though it was able to achieve some strategic aims in the beginning, like satellites and the nuclear bomb, but it didn't have so many spillovers to the commercial sector. Then there were things which China tried to explicitly buy up, especially after Deng Xiaoping, uh, and a lot of effort was to actually buy and acquire. Again, limited success. The third one was bargaining, and that is where a lot of these factors like technology transfer come up and there are examples of things called trade market for transfers, right? So TMFT, those kinds of mechanisms were also there. There were some things about seeding, which you mentioned explicitly about government guidance fund. And in the semiconductor sector, we know that one main problem they have is they are prone to corruption as well. And now that has recently happened where the head of the one of these guidance fund is missing. Don't know what happened to him, but there is a disciplinary action being taken by the party on it. So a case of corruption and that has not led bone fruit as the government would have liked. Then he has spin-offs opening up to FDI, supporting domestic entrepreneurship. There's also an element of stealing, which we discuss, and there are very innovative ways in which stealing has happened as well. It's not just explicit stealing, but also China has adopted some legal, extra legal mechanisms for transfers. For example, many of their high technology zones have technology transfer centers in the US or in Japan, where Chinese scientists are working while staying in US or Japan on developing Chinese technologies, right? So that is also one factor. And we have to remember this could happen in a past era where these kind of things weren't seen very obtusely, right? Today, a lot of countries are taking action against these, but that was not an era when these were seen alarmingly. So China benefited a lot from this. And last one is focus on the maker, And that's where uh, we were talking about these transfers. Also, like you mentioned, there is a role of returnee Chinese in uh, this a lot. A lot of the companies you mentioned, they are made, started by returnee Chinese from the US. And yet, because they continue to be plugged into the global ecosystem of financing, they are always trying to do the best in the world, right? They are not, no one is going to fund them if they are just trying to do things locally. That the government might do, but then government will not have the skill to identify which is the best product and which is the technology that might work. So SoftBank, Nasper, all these companies have also played a big role in China's innovation success. So after that, we have sort of uh, tried to do a case study of China's semiconductor industry and identified some factors which explain its strength and weaknesses and how each of these foundational and proximate factors have played out in that domain. And as we know, it's not as if China is 
the most powerful in the semiconductor sector in fact the lesson from all this is the one the areas where the government had little role those are the ones where china has progressed faster also where which were more akin to china's comparative advantage so things where labor costs were low example semiconductor assembly that's where china has built significant capabilities but in other areas such as uh, manufacturing design manufacturing equipment it is still significantly far behind and is crucially dependent on other countries so with that uh, saurabh given that you've done this work and tried to study it over the last few months what are some broad lessons we can derive from china's innovation pathway and let's end there so what are some lessons we from india can take away so i think in conclusion i think we we say that you know that china's success in innovation you know has been it, it, it's a combination of very these fundamental factors and then these tools that has that have been deployed at the same time all of this was possible due to the very unique external environment that all of this happened in which i think is not there anymore so i think when we take lessons from uh, from from china we have to be aware that these are not complete completely or entirely transferable to countries and just because something may have worked in china it will also work let's say in india or somewhere else i think that's not a right thing to uh, take away even i mean in china i think the areas where there was like where, where there was comparative advantage there they were more successful and in areas where they were dependent they there they have not been as successful so for example in telecom they have been more successful in semiconductors not as much and again the very simplistic explanation that it is because of the state intervention or because of just stealing or espionage that this happened that is not the case there there, there is a lot of things that have gone into this some intentional some not intentional but these all have played a role to kind of make china the innovation powerhouse uh, it is right now at least in some sectors and then one of the most important factors are the efficiency and autonomy as compared to the pure state led approaches that uh, can be used like can explain the success of of china in sectors where there was not as much of a state intervention and again the informal networks such as you know bringing back the talent of china of chinese origin of countries in the region to china uh, one example is you know the smic which is which was created by uh, bringing back talent from taiwan so all of these i think factors play play a role so but i think the one big conclusion also is that how all of these factors are not there anymore or have been have regressed uh, substantially so china has squandered this kind of uh, global uh, environment by being more restrictive about uh, uh, about more movement of people by increasing the the espionage aspect and then the strength of its innovation was this benign geopolitical environment where it was seen as an important partner conducive to science and tech inflows but also not a threat but i think this has not now changed and, and we see all countries big or small trying to restrict uh, this flow or at least trying to regulate a lot more strictly the flow of capital and human capital to and from china so i think that is something that i think is worth uh, tracking and seeing how this evolves and how china also then does change its approach to 
accommodate these changes. Yeah, I think you covered most of the points. I would just like to add towards the end that a lot of times there is a lot of focus on specific policies like, you know, China did ABC Young Talents Program or China did this IDDS policy and that's why it is going to innovate. But what is more important to think is that the state's focus on innovation has been more important than specific policies. In fact, a lot of the policies we surveyed, we found that China achieved suboptimal success. In fact, where the state got in, involved, the things actually regressed uh, also. But the yes, there has been a focus of the state from a long time that this is one area where investment must be done. And that is so in, so, uh, one important factor. And one thing that we can sort of directly supplant in India as well is the fact that the role of education and capable workforce is really, really critical. I think of this as the difference between recipes and ingredients, you know, so you might not, there are different recipes to become an innovation powerhouse. China's pathway was different from Taiwan's. It was different from Europe's and US, but all of them, the governments were able to put together the ingredients and those ingredients are somewhat common, you know, so like capable workforce, education, great university system where research happens uh, and a pipeline of people, uh, PhD researchers that you are able to create with time. Those things were there across all these countries as well, you know, so it's important to think of those ingredients that governments can put together and after that you know the recipes might be different and yet you might be able to achieve the goal that you are seeking so that was our insight by working on this paper i request our readers to go through the paper and tell us what they think and what they have learned about china's innovation and if they have a factor that we have missed in this story we would love to know about it so with that we'll end thanks Saurabh. bye If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle, at Takshashila INST or our website takshashila.org.in